The Music Talk Show. Welcome and toodaloo to another episode of The Music Talk Show, in which the Institutes for Musikwissenschaft's international employees mutilate their department's Norwegian name and crack open the murky mysteries of comparative musicology, musicking and the inverted U-shape of groove. Or so we've been told, because today's music talk show is actually concerned with a part of music that everyone knows from their daily life, listening. As you can hear from the bustling background, we've chosen a special place to talk about our perception, the powers of sound and the extraordinary function of art in our sensory world. We're in Oslo at Nationalmuseet, the National Museum. And we, that are Remy Martin, postdoctoral fellow at RITMO, the Center for Interplanetary Studies in Rhythm, Time and Motion, and myself, Martin Pleiss, a PhD fellow there and your host today. So, first of all, Welcome, Remy. Thank you so, so much for having me, Martin. I'm extremely excited about this and looking forward to where you're going to take me because I don't know too much about what you're going to walk me through today. Uh, that's right, because as, uh, this is as far as my like, thought-through introduction goes. From here on, we're going to get a little bit experimental together because we want to take you on an audio walk through the National Museum. And while we walk through different places in there, we'll talk a bit about what we experience, the role of sound and music, but also our capabilities to connect with the world through our senses at all. Today, everything is about meaning and ourselves, and it starts with us, the listeners, the people. And Remy, you are a people, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, yourself, why you find music and listening worthy of dedicating a, a research career to? I guess it always starts personal. It starts with the initial wonder of listening at a very young age, feeling extremely connected, feeling these sounds, these decisions to put my headphones on. You do it just for that reason, just to experience this, this resonance, as I'm very interested in calling it and many other people are. But then uh, increasingly I got interested in understanding how on earth this is happening. Why is it happening? Again, the fine question of why am I spending so many hours <laughs> with these things attached to my head, going to concerts, to experience being moved, I mean that physically, emotionally, and also to feel that connection with people. We are in a space full of people today. I'm very aware of that. And with music you're often aware of that. You're always communing with others with music. Even if you're sitting at home in what we call a private listening situation, which most of us spend most of our time now in private listening situations with headphones on, you are always, in a sense, connected to other people. So I got in increasingly interested in how is this happening? Why is this happening? Uh, and it kind of just rumbled on, <laughs> on and on and on with various stages of education and degrees and an increasing interest in what we might call the phenomenology, the experiential stuff of musicking as well. Um, yeah, went through various uh, levels of study and PhD thesis on listening, 
particularly that sense of authentication we get from listening, that somehow listening to music can affirm us in some way. We talk about words like it can empower, it can affirm, we can get a sense of agency or something from this. I've got increasingly interested in these, these kinds of things. They're increasingly complex, but I don't think we should... Uh, surrender because it's complex i think we can think in very interesting ways and lots of people have thought in very interesting ways about how music does this to us why we feel so connected in this way now you've you've used the term musicking now uh even though <laughs> I, I i tried to get away from those <laughs> at the start so uh but i guess this one is is pretty important and we should uh, uh Lay it out there, uh, unpack it a little bit. What 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 actually is musicking, uh, and why would you be able to do something with music when you're listening at home? Yes, uh, the term musicking was an attempt, and Christopher Small is famous for coining this musicking, to not just think of music as a singular thing like playing music or listening, as if they're entirely discrete activities. Musicking is this much more umbrella. Um, inclusive term for music as an activity in all kind of senses of that and when we say this what we mean is um, that we uh, we participate in many many different ways in music <laughs> that's how I understand this anyway in a very basic sense is that for listening is not just a purely passive receptive thing to think of listening as an increasingly creative act or participatory thing interactive even um, so musicking uh, aims to do that for us. And it also foregrounds something which I've already mentioned, which is that social element of musical practice or activities, whether it's playing, listening, composing as well. So much more of the participation element, this active involvement in something, um, or engagement, we might call it, that music can afford for us in very, very many ways, in various practices as well. And the fact that we're um, now sitting uh, in a museum and not a concert hall to do this uh, already points to that uh, music is not uh, or we work with music not necessarily in the terms as you would think of as the stuff that is on the CD uh, or, or uh, on Spotify only or something like that but it's actually a little bit broader thought um, what, what role does music or sound a play in regards to musicking when, uh, when you think about a place like a museum? Or, uh... Well, I'm very interested as to why you've brought me here. Mm -hmm. I'm pleased you have. It's wonderful here. And I've not done a sound walk or something we might call it like this um, in this museum. I also don't know what we're going to see today. That's important, yeah. So when you say, what role does music play here, I have some sense of what it might be. Mm-hmm. I also have this general sense that we are always so acutely aware of sound. We live bathed in sound in our lives. Mm -hmm. There are very many people that encourage us to think more seriously about this, about the sonic ecology that we cannot escape ever in our lives, whether that be urban, whether that be um, what we might call natural sounds, environmental sounds, whether it's when we put our headphones on and suddenly the outside world is partially separated off from us as we flood our minds and bodies with musical sound. So I've got a sense of the fact that music might surround us in different ways, um, particularly with uh, different art forms here as well, and artworks. Yeah. Here's some sound. <laughs> Music.
The Music Talk Show. What you've just heard was uh, Remy and me entering room 64 in the National Museum, which is called the Fairy Tale Room. And it's a quite dark uh, space in which a tall tree stands in the middle of the room with uh, branches that actually look a little bit like the antlers of, uh, of deer or animals like that. And you have uh, big oil paintings of princesses and trolls and ducks landing. And of course, there's a lot of noise in this room. Um, Remy, what does this room make you feel like? Well, it's sound that occurs to me first, I think, as you walk into this room. Yes, it's dark, and it has a particular, often effect of focusing in particular ways. And it's the sonic presence of the room, I think, that first concerns me. It first grabs my attention. It also is the thing that first makes me think, how do I behave in this room? <laughs> I think I'm really, really concerned about how close those sounds are. Of course, there are lots and lots of other bits of information here. When we talk about music being a multi-sensory or multimodal thing, a room like this is extremely multimodal. It's demanding a lot of our attention in different directions, to so the paintings on the wall, the tapestry, to sculptures, the polar bear sculpture, that large tree you just mentioned. Um, but for me, it's the sound that I'm most on edge about. <laughs> I'm assuming these works of art on the wall are not going to get louder and impose on my space anymore but this this sonic landscape we're in in this quite small room is is really something that makes you aware and attentive to what's going on here I think I'm also aware of how natural mostly that sound world is in this room we talk about fairy tales in this room but also that it's a very natural world we're in punctuated then by moments of what we might call music more obviously and that combination of the musical and the kind of the natural or ecological is is really interesting here. And it shapes how we look at some of these paintings, which some of them are vast landscape paintings as well. And yet the sounds are really, really close. <laughs> so we've, we have this kind of sense of space and place and scale at work in this room, which is quite a rich experience, actually. <laughs> as I say that, a close animal sound again. <laughs> What I, what I found interesting about this, uh, uh, that what we actually hear now on the background. 
these chimes. They act almost like a jingle, like a sign that uh, they give us immediate an, a hint, a point towards what, what is going on in this room. We associate it immediately with something. It's, wouldn't you agree? It's, some, it's something we're pretty much used to hearing in a certain context, right? Almost certainly. Especially in that, we talk about fairy tale or the fantastical at play here. I think if I was to walk in and see some of these landscape uh, paintings on the wall, I wouldn't necessarily immediately think of the fantastical or the fantasy element in this room. And as you say, that signifier, that musical sign, has for us now particular meaning often, which is that fantastical element. Um, hearing that sound with a sculpture of an owl, one cannot avoid Harry Potter <laughs> associations, and I hate to go there straight away. We try to avoid these things. But it, it has that in this room. It lends this room that meaning. You're allowed by accent. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. Because that musical element, we might say, brings a brings a human or humanity to this otherwise quite natural space. Of course, some of the paintings, when you look closer, have human figures in them. Indeed, there's a self-portrait of one of the artists as well on the wall. But there's something about how that musical element, that gesture you just you just pointed out there, that signifier of a musical fantasy, um, brings a slightly different meaning, I think, to the room, rather than it just being what we might call a natural landscape or sonic ecology that doesn't have that human narrative signification in some way. This jingle, I, I'll just continue to call it jingle, uh, it's also, it's quite short. Uh, why is music able to do this with such a you could i mean it's short which basically means it's 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 not much information that we're being given here by this sound so why why does it have this impact this little piece of information it seems very direct doesn't it very fast the meaning that arises from music perception seems to be sometimes so immediate and so imminent the philosopher john dewey said that sound generally agitates us directly We sense it as a common commotion of the organism. It's also fleeting, right? It's always replaced by the next thing, which is also something that we experience here. First you have this jingle, then you have the growling bear, and uh, it immediately also transforms the, uh, the atmosphere and the information that we're being given about this room. <laughs> Now, Remy, um, this is a question we will hear more often in this episode. What did you do when you entered this room? I listened, I think, firstly. Yes, there's lots of different types of art on the walls here, but I think I was really, really aware of some of those particularly close animal sounds. And also, a room like this takes some adjustment. And I mean this in terms of listening, this oral adjustment... But also it's very dark compared to the room that immediately precedes it. So you have this kind of um, adjustment of sight and attention as well that kind of takes place here. And I think it's a combination of those two things of working, walking in from a fairly silent space outside to this deliberately noisy space and darker space. 
that demands this kind of reorientation, this adjustment, adjustment to the setting. I'll say that again without animal sounds looming over us. <laughs> and they do have the sense of looming over us because the speaker's above us as well. That situation is quite important to this room. When you walk in, you're aware that sounds are above you. So, yeah, I, was aware, I think I was aware of the sound firstly because sound does have a particularly direct way of appealing to your sense of how secure you feel in a space. As Marcel Koberson and Annette Nilsson say in their book on ethics and music, sound penetrates the body. So I think I was aware of the sounds as I was starting to look and reorient myself, I think, around the space. Uh, perhaps, again, that's the musician and musicologist talking about sound first, but I think in this room it, it's, the, it's the sonic qualities that do separate it from where we've just come from, for example. I've, I've picked up something that the curators of the museum actually said about this, this kind of room because there's several uh, rooms a little bit similar like this in the museum. And they said uh, these sound installations were designed to, quote, evoke the history and geographical associations of the rooms in which they feature. Now, interestingly enough, we are in a fairy tale room. So uh, the whole idea that this has a geographical Uh, an historical uh, uh, pointer to to its quality. Uh, what do you think about that? Like, is, did that work for you? Yes, absolutely. It's, it's hard to avoid. Sense of place here is made quite explicit. You know, this is this is not my world. This is not the usual when I get up and go to the office in the morning on my bike world. This is something other. It is something more fantastical. Um, and that fantasy is part of a geographical fantasy. There's a there's an ambiguity to these forests and to these landscapes. They're not ones I grew up in, for example. So I'm, in a way, having to immerse myself in that that narrative. And yeah, it feels, it does feel like it's transporting me to something fantastical, not to a certain road I know or a certain pub I know, or something like that. This is much more otherworldly than that, I think. And the, the, this combination of sound and the art on the walls is, is doing that. It doesn't have a geographical specificity. It has a, an ambiguity, a spatial resonance that I think is very inviting for people as well, because we want to plant ourselves in these worlds. For the small time we're sitting in this room, we want to feel immersed or absorbed in this world, to sense what it might be like, although we know it's fantastical. Now, we've left the fairy tale room and we are actually strolling through the museum now. Uh, and we're coming to uh, something very different. But yeah, uh, it's basically just a, a corridor in front of us. So let's see what happens.
So room 71 is basically just one long corridor with the grey walls on each side and it's, it's quite narrow, like uh, three people could probably fit in there uh, next to each other. Um, but as you heard, there's sound coming from the walls from both sides and it's changing and shifting while we walk through it. Now, the piece is actually called Mardi 8 uh, by Reno Isaac, but there's not much more information that we are being given. There's not even a placade on this uh, corridor that, uh, that gives us the title. I, I got that from the website, <laughs> and I guess nobody's really looking for that. Um, but uh, what, yeah, I mean, Remy, what, what did you make of it? What, what is this to you? I'm implicated in this space in a way that's different to the other space. We might talk of ourselves as perceivers more obviously in that fantasy room because the sound is around us, the paintings are around us. There's no obvious way in which I'm determining what's going on. Whereas here you sense this what we might call agency or role we have to play in filling this otherwise visually quite empty space but sonically then quite resonant space because it doesn't do anything for you if you don't actually walk through it if you don't stop if you continue to walk if you turn around if you direct your attention to either sides of the wall One of the ways of thinking about this is as you walk, it kind of unfolds. This is an emergent and very mobile sonic space. Through one or two or three or four walks, you cannot get enough of a sense of what's possible in this space. You know what it demands? It demands exploration. Exactly. It demands that we lean forward, walk a bit, go back, because you go, oh, I want to hear that sound again. And there's the piano again. There's the piano again. And you kind of miss it when you leave that piano sounds. You can go back if you want. It demands an exploration of a kind that is very different, I think, to that last space. When we talked about sen making sense of a space, what that involved in the last space was looking at paintings, listening to these natural and mu musical, as we might call them, gestures, and kind of trying to find some unity in that, some theme. This is not the case here. It is not a signification of a particular meaning, fantasy or fairy tale here. We are not in that space. All we are doing is making some contact and sense of what we're experiencing right then, I think. Do you like it? Very much so. I like it because I want to exhaust it more. <laughs> because it resists easy, this is this music. Or this is a narrative piece of music in some ways we walk through this space. There's no obvious story here. There's no obvious style here. I like it because it invites you then to walk more up and down it. Mm -hmm. Actually, just before we did our own walk, I saw 
three uh, young men walking up and down doing exactly the same thing, I think. It's, yeah, it's very fun to be in. <laughs> I, it's, it's interesting because um, usually when we, when we think about music and we think about art and these kind of things, or big, big terms are thrown around, stuff like beauty and, uh, yeah, emotions, uh, evoking emotions like sadness, loss, uh, you know, uh, the big gestures. Uh, but music seems to have a whole lot of other roles as well. Uh, and it's still emotional. I mean, you said you liked moving through this here. And we should not forget that uh, actually making you move is one big part of the function of music and sounds, but also in a, in a, in a social sense. Right, music brings us together. It makes us come together in in a space and share the space together and stuff like that. I, I, I think you're right. Immense powers are often ascribed to music. People often talk in immensities about music, how it transforms us, how it transports us, how it can save us. Immense uh, things are said about the ethics of musical experience that in some way by listening or playing together we can reach some higher form of being with another person or other people. And I, I'm totally on board with those, by the way. <laughs> But also it has more subtle resonances. It has more subtle resonances in the way that in everyday life engaging with sound can reorientate us, can make us feel readjusted to things. People often talk about these experiences of feeling centered that in some way listening to music or playing music can give us a sense of control back. These don't have to be immense experiences all the time. They can be very immense experiences, life-changing ones, afternoon-changing experiences. <laughs> But sometimes they're not. And I guess walking through here, that wasn't an experience of immensity of the kind when we talk about how music might save us. But it was important. It had meaning. I'm also aware of how I'm watching people now and I was kind of uh, aware of how we were both walking through this space together that people are interacting with this music and each other as they move through the space. You mentioned this this idea of musicking, this all-inclusive social musical practice. That's exactly what people are doing as they're walking through this corridor that in other ways does not look look musical. It is a corridor. Yeah. <laughs> Blank. Quite dark. And yet they launch into a musicality as soon as they become aware of not only that there is sound, but they are part of that sound creation. And that that sound has an intimate relationship with them. It feels very close, isn't it? It's a narrow corridor. These sounds feel close. And yet they're not just imposed on you. You have some determination in what happens in this space. The musicking we're describing here is not just that we are listening to a predetermined loop that we may start to get a sense of what's coming at what time, that our movement determines exactly the aesthetic profile of this space, which is a very fun feeling, again, a feeling of ownership of this space as well. In some way, this is our space. This yeah. corridor is ours, mine, yours, ours together as we walk through it. We are co-creating the experience. We are, create we are co-creators in the space, and that has, I think, a really nice feeling. I I'm absolutely sure that while... Uh, musical experience doesn't always have to be immense. The fact that musical experience feels like a creative act, even when you're listening to a recording you love, your interaction is in a way creative, your attention is creative, 
the sense you make of it is creative. Being entangled in a, in a musical space, it doesn't have to be like this. It can be a recording, I think. Yeah. That's one of the things that really fascinates me, actually, about music, is that we yeah. sense this unbelievable, remarkable, stupefying at times sense of involvement. I have a, a, maybe a t tangible example for that from my personal listening experience because I, I tend to place myself in the role of certain musicians in, the, uh, in whatever I'm hearing. If I'm really, really excited about uh, the, the drums in a, in a song, then I become the drummer. I am, I'm seeing the song, so to speak, from the perspective of the drummer. And, and that's where my attention lies and everything else follows that. Yeah. It's a remarkable thing, isn't it? Because we know, rationally, I am not the drummer. Yeah, <laughs> and yet, of course, we, we throw ourselves into these... Well, they are worlds, they are spaces. Even you know, musical recordings are, are spaces, and we throw themselves into it. It's very uh, funny you mention this. As part of my research, I've been in, interviewing lots of listeners, trying to get really rich insights into what happens when we put the headphones on these ways in which we're transported, the ways in which we feel a sense of ownership and involvement. And various people have mentioned exactly that sense that you've just mentioned. Not only being in the room with the musicians is a thing I've heard a few times now. I am in the room with the musicians. That's all sorts of a result of all sorts of spatial resonances, spatial specifications, stylistic invitations. All these things go into this. But beyond just being in the room with musicians, I've heard people say, like, I am that musician. Yeah. I become that person. Of course, the voice in popular music, which I'm very interested in, the voice is often the first thing that people are able to impose themselves in and on. Um, but we have it with other things. You mentioned drums as well. Yeah. And I guess this is this space here, this corridor that we're walking down, uh, involves us or invites us, affords involvement in a very obvious way. This feels like a new space as well. It's quite unexpected. When you see this dark corridor, I did not expect yeah. to have this kind of aesthetic experience, this kind of involvement with a space. So there's a novelty here. I've not been in a space like this, I don't think, ever before. Exactly. Um, the newness of it is demanding as well. It's quite exhausting. I want to see what's going on, what I can do in this space. But I'm not the one to talk about novelty. Martin, this is your area, I think. So <laughs> did you experience novelty here? And is it of the kind that you see in your work on virtual reality environments, for example? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I did. Um, the, the kind of work I do is trying to find out how people react to the, an environment like this, actually, where, you, where everything is at all not obvious. Um, so... I was I was immediately reminded when when I walked through here, but what people do in in the kind of experiments I do with them, which is basically, uh, as we as we said, move around, because you start to build a relationship with what what you don't know, and you start to build this relationship in a way that is I mean it's kind of obvious, but it's it's very basic. The, the, it's like the, the the most basic things that we know and how we relate to the world, and that is stuff like oh, spatial relationship. And then other things like uh, how can I change the environment, which is interesting because people usually don't ask at first, what is this about, but what can I do in here? And I think we can see that here as well. It's like 
people don't stop in this corridor and, and start talking to each other. What are you hearing? What do you think what this is? No, they just, they just walk around. And they put their head close to one wall, then to the next. Then they're surprised about how loud a certain spot is and stuff like that. Uh, so it's, it's about them and their possibilities to act with this thing. And, uh, I mean, we're talking about moving, but what moving here is, basically, is perceiving, right? So you're moving in order to hear something differently. Uh, and usually when, when we think about perception, about using our senses, we, we're talking about it, this like it's something passive, something that just happens, that our body does while we're concerned with the real problems of the world, like mathematical problems and uh, things like that. But I, I think that's not true. It's like um, perception is something that is very active and very... Uh, it, it doesn't work without us taking action. It's the same thing when you walk a pic at a picture and, uh, at a wall. It's like, where does your gaze go? Where do, you, where do your eyes wander? Uh, it's, the, it's the same thing. It's more subtle. It's it's very visible here, of course. It's also exhibited, basically, right? It's as you said, we can see the other visitors. So I think it's. I I, I take a leap here and guess that the artist intended this to be a space where you can also observe other people doing the same thing. Mm. Which, by the way, is uh, why people uh, scholars like Nö would call this this piece. Uh, experiential art because we can observe ourselves uh, perceiving something here experiencing art that's it it's the po possibilities for action in deeply embodied action which makes me think this is a really good example or ex exemplar experience of what we call embodied music cognition mm -hmm. this is a space where that comes to the fore in a delicious, empowering way. The music talk. The music talk. The music talk. So we've we've mentioned fourth. Uh, through the museum and as we uh, continue on the second floor actually so this we, we, are, we have been uh, in the modern art section of the museum the whole time and, we, and we're getting more and more abstract we're now entering a uh, secluded space one that is dedicated to one piece only so let's let's hear what's going on in there Le problème, trafic vendé. Le problème, vendé trafic. Les mondes, voilà, Thank you. 
So the piece we've just seen is called Blick or Glance uh, in English and it's actually uh, a, a cooperation between different artists. Uh, you have a composer, you have a sculptor and you have a poet. Again, the first question would be uh, when we entered this room with the uh, large mirrors in the center and colorful circles who are, are turned by motors in front of these mirrors and sound again washing from above. What did you do? What was the first thing you did in there? It's difficult to say. It's a demanding space, actually. It's a difficult one. You mentioned as we were approaching, this is going to be a more abstract experience, and I think that's at the heart of the kind of ambiguity of that space. This is one of the funny things, actually. You ask me now, we've only been out of there for a minute, mm -hmm. and now we're talking, but already accessing what that initial experience I had is quite a difficult thing. It's one of the problems we face in our research. We're trying to make people access and describe and report experiences it's hard um so now i feel on the spot <laughs> i think it was a it was firstly a voice i assume that was the poem that was being read on the the audio recording it's very difficult i only speak a little bit of norwegian so following what was going on in the uh, audio recording was quite difficult for me and yet i'm very very aware of the voice One of the reasons why I, I thought it would be interesting to go into this room in particular was exactly that, that chaos of sensations that, that is going on in there. It's, by the way, stylistic, it's not a chaos. It, it seems a very clear room. But if you think about and start to talk about what you actually perceived in there, you, it becomes obvious. It is chaos. But when, when we do research about art, about music, things like that, we usually only talk about very specific aspects of that certain thing like certain people look at the melody certain people look at the history certain people look even at stuff like concerts they only look at particular dimensions or aspects of what it is like to be at a concert but usually that's not how these things live with us right this is a designed experience But would you agree that music, in general, in our lives, often also appears in chaotic circumstances where there's a lot going on that is more than just what you would call the composition or even the performance of the musicians or something like that? Almost certainly. We talk so much about harmony in music. That's a phrase that both, uh, a term that both points to a particular parameter of music, it's harmony, but also that it's a harmonious experience in some way is the ideal for music. But when you think about it, same within that room, we have various multiple strands of sound and information coming at us. I don't want to say information, that sounds too cold. Strands of activity, strands of resonance, threads that come at us all at the same time. <laughs> so in a sense, it's always chaotic. But not chaotic because this remarkable thing happens in perception, like you say, where we are able to make sense. We are able to experience it not as chaos, but as interest, yeah. as, as richness. This multiplicity 
these multiple things going on have an appeal to us that don't feel chaotic. Um, but yes, it's extremely difficult to talk about and to separate out those strands. And when we start separating, separating out those strands of what's going on in a room like that or indeed in a music recording or performance, yes, it helps us make sense of bits of it, but there's a danger. These things, these experiences matter and mean because they are holistic, because they are multiple, because they are fleeting, temporal, rich events. They're not singular in some way. So while separating out things can help, we must try to talk about these things as wholes as well because that's really how we experience them. Daniel Stern was very good on this when he said that we experience things as gestalts as unified wholes and to separate out strands or bits of experience or dimensions of it too far would be to actually would actually be to stop talking about what it is we're really experiencing in perception so we've uh, almost reached the the final destination of our little journey in the national museum and we've come to a place that i myself would describe as existential Uh, I'm giving a little bit away here. Remy is yet to, to, to go in there and, and experience it. And uh, he'll take uh, his hearing uh, with you because actually within this room there's only one person allowed at each time. So uh, you are now becoming Remy. <laughs> That's an unnerving idea, isn't it? <laughs> So, Remy, you've just come out of there. Uh, 
I, th- I think you have to describe what, what actually happened there. So I walked up a very, very narrow staircase enclosed by metal. <laughs> the whole inner structure there is this very, very claustrophobic metal corridor, effectively, when you reach the top of the stairs. At the end of the corridor is a bright light that comes from underneath and a kind of... Uh, uh, circle platform you stand on at the end but you're encased in metal I'm incredibly, I was incredibly aware of how encased I was in this material there's a materiality we might say about that experience which was very different from the others that felt quite comfortable to be in there was nothing imposing on my body in any of the other experiences that one was very claustrophobic with this metallic encasing <laughs> tight in cal- in tal- uh, metallic encasing the, r- the sound resonates there's an immensity to the scale and space of that it's a very bizarre combination of being very very tightly enclosed and yet every footstep making these cavernous sounds these enormous reverberations that occur in this otherwise tight space so gosh I was so aware of my body being confined Yet also very aware that my body, in its act, uh, in its interaction, its contact, its collision with this metallic case I was in, mm. was making these hugely resonant, enormous sounds as well. Why do you think? Uh, what, what made these sounds sound like this? Well, the first thing you're aware of is it's you that's instigating these sounds, that's creating them, and yet there's a disconnection because you're in such a small space. Yeah. Your body is encased in such a small space, and yet you're making these uh, tremendously reverberant, resonant sounds. I suspect it has something to do with where that, that, that actual space I was in. There's an illusion of being in a cl- closed space here, but you might know more than I do about what's what's going on there. Yeah, I, I mean, I can explain a little bit this. That because you actually, as you guessed correctly, you are in, in a quite big space. This is a huge concrete cube, that, that uh, the metal corridor is hanging in basically you're walking upstairs because you are walking into a hanging structure within that cube and all around you is basically nothing until you hit that concrete wall which is several meters away in certain directions so uh, and the only thing that is there is this metal the void and you uh, uh, as the yeah as someone who acts within Uh, this this little small corridor. It's extremely cool. <laughs> But uh, what I also found striking is, I mean, of course you have a lot uh, going on for other senses as well. You have the light in there. You it's have extremely warm as well. Yeah, it's warm. Yeah, absolutely. You have the 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 feeling of the metal everywhere. It's it's a little bit resonating the whole thing. Oh, in terms of like tactile, if you take a step, you feel the metal giving away a little bit. Uh, but the the most information you get about the space is from sound, because you actually feel this this contrast, right? You feel this is narrow, but Something else is going on here, and I can hear it. Mm. We think our senses are something nice, something that gives us pleasure, something that is... Uh, but we, we are the, the thinking animals 
the speaking animals, the musicking animals. And we are still, with our listening and with our practice of musicking, connected to these very basic, very existential, very uh, sometimes like frightening roots, right? Our senses are there because they protect us. They, they make us aware of dangers and stuff like that. Um, would you agree? I think so. That's really apparent in that space. It's not a comfortable space to be in. Sound, as it's created, well, simultaneously created and perceived in that room, is an indication of that fragility, of that vulnerability. You mentioned in the the walk down the corridor that um, where you determine the music, as it were, that there's a possibility for action. It makes you want to reach out to that space and world and create something with it. In there, it makes you want to do the same thing, but you're very aware that that might be a dangerous thing. Okay. <laughs> there's a vulnerability, I think, to the body and to existing in this small and yet remarkably cavernous space, warm, claustrophobic space, that makes me aware of an insecurity, I think, in what I'm doing in that room as well. Have you ever had musical experiences that were kind of similar in, in how dangerous or, or even like just uh, existential they felt? Oh, certainly. And in performance, uh, I'm thinking of an example that now has given me pangs of anxiety just thinking about it or remembering it. Um, I did some work playing in what we call pit bands for theatres, so playing the guitar in a large orchestra that plays for the show on the stage. Ah. That was extremely nerve-wracking. There's a, there's a, a nakedness as soon as you go into that first rehearsal that <laughs> <laughs> I found extremely uh, anxiety-inducing, actually, at the time. There's something existential and very revealing about making sound in front of other people. Mm-hmm. That's, of course, very different. In this small metallic space, I'm the singular being in there, which has its own existential and kind of nervousness about it. But often music, as I've mentioned various times, is a so- deeply social thing, profoundly social event. So playing with other people sounds like a strange thing to say, that playing around lots of people would make you feel kind of danger or an exposure or a nakedness or a vulnerability, but it often does. At the same time, and this is music's wonder, particularly my experience of playing it, is that um, alongside this vulnerability, this exposure, your contribution to a collective sound is incredibly affirming, mm-hmm. supportive, encouraging, empowering at the same time. Um, and it's not just about playing. Listening can do this too, actually. I think listening to music can put us in very vulnerable situations. We know we use music for all sorts of complex reasons, not just to lift our mood, but to... To plumb the depths of our feeling often, you know, um, which can be a very vulnerable thing. In some of the research I've done, talking to people about their listening experience, they talk about listening to music as an extremely, sometimes overwhelming thing. That listening to music is too much. Yeah, There is too much possibility for sense, for feeling, for vulnerability, for evocation of feeling and memory as well. So... Yes, music can be immense. Yes, music is often seen as a positive force in our lives. Aesthetic experience is transformative in all those good ways. But also there's a, there's a risk to it. There's a vulnerability. There's an unpredictability about opening yourself for aesthetic experiences, whether like we've done today on a sound walk through a gallery or through putting on the headphones. Yeah. 
And part of its liveness, as someone like Martin uh, Barker would say, is this vulnerability, this possibility for sense and experience, which is not always positive in that kind of crude sense, but also has some resonances and richness, which is potentially revealing of things that are a little less comfortable, perhaps. And that's okay too. I find it also really interesting that people can point towards that, like, like in these interviews that you make, that they can actually say about themselves that they feel it was too much. Because this is, this is something that uh, I'm concerned with a lot in, in the work that I do, because I use art as uh, a tool to speak about perception in general, right? So my, my research is actually not specifically looking at certain forms of art. It's more looking at in general, what does our perception do in certain situations? And art helps us enormously uh, to to realize what's going on. And it does not only do so for the researcher. It does so for us as the people experiencing it. In And this is intentional. This is by design. This is one of the powers of art that it, that it, uh, t it, it makes yourself visible in front of you. You can experience yourself as someone who acts and perceives and uh, acknowledges and loves and hates whatever it is you're listening to or looking at or yeah I totally agree Dan Harvey, the phenomenologist said consciousness generally he's talking here not just about art consciousness is self-luminous it's always revealing of a self that we are take one step further and talk about artistic consciousness or even more specifically for me a musical consciousness It's profoundly self-luminous. Yeah. It makes us aware of exactly and who we are, who we could be, what we're sensing, what we're not, all of these things. It's that, it's that luminous, uh, illumination, illumination, let's put it that way, of self that really interests me about artistic experience. Yeah. This is really nice, and I think we should actually end on this point because I th it was my hope that we would arrive at exactly at this, uh, this point of view, at the end of our uh, little tour to the National Museum, to the National Museet in Oslo. And uh, I think at this point I can only thank you, Remy Martin, for accompanying me here and uh, telling us so much about your research. Thank you so much, Martin. It's been really, really fun <laughs> and very, very interesting. I look forward to talking more about these things. <laughs> that's it we're back outside of the museum uh, thank you for accompanying us on this little journey this little sound walk through the national museet in oslo i want to thank especially remy martin uh, for participating in this and uh, one should also mention uh, annette nielsen She's an associate professor at EMW uh, and Ritmo, and her work is very much concerned with the same kind of questions that we discussed here today. And she's basically our boss. So uh, thank you, Nanette. And um, if you're more interested in discussions around uh, music and uh, things like the ecology of music, the phenomenology of music, which means basically how we experience 
art and music and how emotions work how affect works how uh, we use things like music and sound as meaningful uh, relationships in our life uh, then look us up at the meantime we are gonna enjoy uh, the nice Oslo weather hear some seagulls hear some trams hear the ferries arriving and departing right here from the National Museet and uh, we wish you a very nice rest of your day the music talk 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 the music talk